Hello. Bonjour. Hello. Abrigado. Konich. Okay. I'm going to stop before I embarrass myself even further, I should say. Also, I'm pretty sure one of those was not the word for hello. And uh, that just shows just how great I am at different languages. I'll, I'll try to stick to numbers. But that brings up an interesting point. Language is just beautiful. And I know that sounds just very trite, but it's also incredibly frustrating. It's beautiful because these systems of mouth noises somehow are understood by masses of people, giving us the power to do everything from order a coffee to write a speech that just sways those masses into action. It's frustrating because of the whole Tower of Babel situation where for some reason we all don't understand each other's languages, creating hijinks, confusion, frustration, and ultimately creating dissonance. That power and frustration also applies to one of our favorite languages, email. You've got mail. Yeah, it's it's a language, and a lot of us don't know how to speak email. And that leads to the natural question of, well, how do you do that? Well, you can't go to email class or learn a study abroad program, although maybe that's the actual dream. Instead, you have to learn from folks like Samar Owais, an email strategist and copywriter in the world of SaaS and e-commerce. For the past decade plus, she has cultivated an understanding of what it takes to send and receive emails. With her help, you can skip the phonics and vocabulary of email and get right to the tactical tools that make emails great. All that and more coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, Samara Owais dives deep into email marketing. We talk about the one rule that makes a good email, mapping out an email journey, getting from value realized to value achieved moments with email, how to deal with non-responsive readers, and keeping readers focused on your message. So uh, who are you and what do you do? Um, first of all, thank you for having me, Patrick. Total honor to be here. Uh, my name is Summer, pronounced, spelled differently, pronounced like the season. Not sure what my parents were thinking, but here we are. I'm an email conversion strategist and copywriter for SaaS and e-commerce brands. I work, um, I specialize in onboarding and attention in SaaS and lifecycle emails in e-commerce. And I work, I've been lucky enough to work with companies like HubSpot, Drip, Pinterest um, and numerous e-commerce brands over the course of my email career. And it's been an absolutely amazing ride. Yeah, I love I love people who have email careers because those are uh, those are the folks that are my people because I think email is one of those things where we all complain about it, but like really well crafted emails are just kind of amazing, whether they're plain text or or heavily uh, you know heavily kind of designed and those types of things. And so, just kind of curious because I, I know you've written a lot of fun articles, you've obviously done a lot you know in the world of email, but what makes a good email? Like let's start super broad there because I'm, I'm you're in this world and. So so I, I, I want to make sure I understand how you think about things. Yeah, absolutely. Simplicity, honestly. Sending the right email at the right time to the right person. And the message needs to be simple. And I always say, if we're talking about what goes within an email, it follow the rule of one, right? One message, one type of CTA, one reader. So your list could be like 100,000 people, but it'll be one person across the screen reading that email, right? And it doesn't matter whether that's B2B or B2C. It is a person reading that email. So follow the rule of fun, make it conversational, and 
keep it simple. Yeah. And I think you said what you just said is pretty simple, but it's actually a little complicated, I think, because it's not only the the targeting, right? So you just you just brought up segmentation, which can get really intense, right? And then like one message, it's also really hard to like boil everything down to one message. And then there's obviously flourishes around that. I guess when you think about segmentation, because you've seen a lot of different types of, you know, you know, SaaS e-commerce, like they're, they're a bit different in how they like, you know, go and get folks. And obviously there's many different you know, types of emails, right? Onboarding, offboarding, conversion, these types of things. Like how do people segment, you know, and I know that's super broad, so we could spend some time there, but like, what's your view of segmentation? Okay. So if you're talking about SaaS, it's active users, inactive users, people who have signed up for your newsletter, all of that. So it depends on what you're doing and what your goals are, right? So if you've got a robust content marketing program for your company, then you're obviously building your email list, right? And so you have a separate list that is just signing up for your newsletter. Then you have a separate segment for people who are signing up for the free trial. Then you have a separate segment for people who are becoming paid customers. And then there is people who are starting to get inactive, starting to get cold, then they're about to churn out all of that. So it really depends on, I feel like the, the email journey is super important here and the user journey is important here. And so whenever I think about segmentation, I think of it from the angle of the user's journey. Got it. So it sounds like if I'm kind of take, extrapolating from there, it's like, it's more about that journey or the actions that they're taking more than anything. Do you then, especially for larger brands, do you then like segment down based on like size or something like that? Do you, or do you typically try to avoid like what would be called an AB cross in terms of like the number of segments? I like to keep it as simple as possible, right? So, and, and my projects always start with mapping out uh, the email journey. Even, even if all I'm doing is tackling the onboarding, I will ask them to sit down with me and walk me through their user's journey and let's map out the email journey, right? And so it usually turns into this, a bird's eye view almost, a flow chart of the, what that yeah. would look like, right? And it starts from the moment somebody lands on your website and uh, one of two things will happen if, you know, and, and I always use the B2C as an example, but they're either going to sign up for your newsletter or they're going to sign up for a free trial, right? And at that point, we need to sit down and think, okay, they've taken the action we wanted them to take, but what emails are we going to send them next? And what is the purpose of those emails? So if somebody signed up for your newsletter, you ask yourself, what emails are we going to send them? And the answer is usually a welcome sequence or a nurture sequence, right? But what is the purpose of that welcome sequence? And the purpose is to push people to the free trial. And if somebody signs up for the free trial, you ask yourself, what is the purpose of sending them whatever emails you want to send them, right? And the purpose is to get them to sign up for the paid version. And so then that becomes the free to paid onboarding uh, sequence, right? But and, and so on, we keep building until we get to the end of whatever user journey that is, right? And, and I always say this is a live document and it keeps getting updated to as we work on different portions of the user journey and create email sequences for each. But more than asking about what happens next, there's another critical question I feel that we need to ask, which is also where segmentation comes into play is, yes, we're planning. So far, I've told you how we plan for like, as people convert, right? But there is a huge chunk majority, I would say, of users and subscribers who would not do what you want them to do. And so you need to create a plan for them. What are you, what emails are you going to send them if they don't convert? 
So if somebody from gets the welcome emails and does not sign up for the free trial, you need to sit down and come up with a strategy of how you're going to deal with that. What are you going to do? Now, the usual answer is we're going to continue sending them our content emails, all of that. But in there somewhere, we need to get strategic about pushing our free trial at them again. Because yes, maybe they didn't sign up now because maybe it wasn't the right time. But that doesn't mean it wouldn't be the right time always, right? At some point, they might need it. If they're still on our list, they're still interested. Um, similarly, if somebody goes through the free to paid onboarding sequence and doesn't sign up for the paid version, then we need to sit down and ask ourselves, how are we going to handle all the people that are not had that happen converted? Typical answer usually is, and it seems to, you know, it's a solid option, is that we extend the free trial. But I feel like that's premature because we really don't know why they didn't. We're not taking that step to find out why they didn't convert, right? And so qualitative data becomes really important here because we it, it's so easy to send out a simple email saying, hey, we noticed that you didn't sign up for the paid version. Will you please tell us what stopped you? Because we're always working to improve our customer experience, our software, all of that, right? Make it easy for them to just reply to that email and get you that information that you need. And it's, it, I call these proactive customer support emails. And what it does is that it gives you insight into problems before they become problems. And so just keep a simple place where you keep putting in all of this, these insights and then every three months or so go through them and see if any patterns come. And so I kind of approach, and, and I know it's not a clear-cut answer to segmentation, Right. But yeah. this is but how I some, approach it. Yeah. There's some specifics there that I think are really good. I guess my question is around, so if it, it's very action-based, right? And I like what you said about, well, if someone doesn't take an action that you didn't say it like this, and this is a little convoluted, but it's kind of an action in, in yeah. and of itself. Therefore that should trigger something as well. Right. If they don't do yeah. it within X amount of time, I guess what I kind of struggle with, with what you said, and I'm curious your, your take is sometimes there's obvious actions like, oh, they started a trial. Right. But before that, there's a lot of like non-obvious things like how do I know that doing X is the right thing to send this type of sequence, right? Like how do I determine some of those actions that aren't as obvious or, or maybe that's not low enough hanging fruit. So you like shouldn't even worry about it until you have everything else figured out. But that that's kind of sometimes what I struggle with because I think a lot of brands and companies, they don't necessarily know their buyers. They don't know who's a great buyer. They don't even know like why their product's important to the buyer, these types of things. And so they end up inevitably kind of just guessing and checking and, and I just worry that they're going to set up the right actions for the obvious ones, but the non-obvious ones, which are really where you need to put the work in, they're just not going to do anything. So what, what's your take on that? I think you just answered your own question. They I know, know I do that buyers. often, but I want to get your take. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my thing is I don't start a project without doing the voice of customer research, right? It isn't until I talk to their, their users, non-users, their target market, understand what their pain points are, what they like about the software, all of that. And just basically spending time with them to understand and how, what problem they're solving, uh, hiring our software to solve for them, basically, right? So a little bit of a jobs to be done perspective there. I don't go deep into that because I, I partner with this amazing consumer psychologist who does the voice of customer research for my business. And she is the one who will like, I am at a point where I will tell companies, I'm sorry, Hannah and I are a package deal. And so if we are not doing voice of customer research, I cannot guarantee you conversions. And so it really, really just starts with talking to your uh, users and your subscribers and also people who have churned out, who have, yes, there will be fewer of these who will respond to your requests to get on a call or take a survey. But even if two or three will do it, it'll be enough. And so just get to know, take the time to talk to your customers, get to know them better. Got it. And I think that not, you know, we could probably spend an 
entire podcast talking about research, right? But I'm kind of curious, like one, why don't people do the research? And two, what's kind of like, if you're giving an overview of like the research that you should be doing, especially for email and copy and the triggers and things like that, like, what does that look like? I feel like I'll answer your first question for the first part of your question first, right? Why aren't people doing more research? And I feel, I believe the answer is that it takes time. It doesn't give results fast, right? So doing research for an like email that. project, at least anywhere, takes anywhere between four to six weeks. And people are like, no, that's the time limit we have for like creating an email sequence. Yeah. yeah. No, it, it's a three-month project. And so time is a thing and they don't see the value because it's not something that will give them immediate returns. So I always have like a bit of an education element in it where I tell them like this is data that will inform beyond your emails and it will be good for 12 months so that you can keep going back to it for insights anytime you need to make a decision regarding your users, right? Okay, I tend to forget. What was the other part of your question? So like, great, I want to do research and I don't want to hire you, which I should hire you, but what do I do? Like, what does that research look like? Especially like the voice of the customer research when it comes to like setting yourself, yourself up for like email and stuff like that. Yeah. So that looks like surveys and interviews mostly, but it also looks like taking a look at support tickets, the common problems that are coming up and talking to the customer service representative, some of them, and finding out what are some questions that you are getting that your software already does, but your users aren't realizing that they're doing right? And so that's one of the questions we ask them when we interview them. So three main things, talking to people at the company, and my personal favorite is always going to the customer service reps, interviewing customers and surveying. And so those are usually enough to give us anywhere between 400 to 600 data points. And it'll, and then, you know, Hannah, my partner, research partner will analyze it, put together a report, and then I will study it come up with strategic recommendations, which we will then present to the client. And then there's another tricky step that goes here. And I, I feel like we're going beyond what you just asked. But when I make strategic recommendations, I always have to remind clients that you need to be realistic about which one of these you can implement. Because I could create an ideal scenario email sequence for you, whether that's onboarding or retention. But if you are unable to implement even one part of it, it will not work. So... It doesn't matter if out of the four recommendations I'm making, you can only implement one. Let me know. And it's my job as an email conversion strategist to find a way through to those conversions for you based on the situation we have now. So ever since I started saying that, like a lot of my clients will come to me and say, okay, so this, this, is this is beyond the purview of our chain of command. We cannot take quick decisions on it, but this is what we can do. And then it's up to me to create an onboarding plan or a retention plan, retention focus plan that will get them the results that they're after. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, because we, one of our products does a lot of market research and it's, it is kind of fascinating how like everything you just described, like was not rocket science, right? Like it wasn't like, oh my gosh, like I think you're really smart but it wasn't like oh my gosh you're like <laughs> albert einstein totally email, right? going. Yeah, yeah 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 it, it, so it's, it's same thing with pricing people think i'm you know a genius with pricing but it's like no it's just like thinking through the problem and like doing the right type of research and like putting in the effort right and i really liked what you said about and i think this is a good lesson for more than just email which is like four to six weeks sometimes that's the research phase right and that sucks right like because you should have done that research four to six weeks ago right but we get so prone and biased towards action which i don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but we realize that sometimes the action is not necessarily going to have product results for a bit. 
Okay, we've done our triggers based on actions to figure out kind of the softer actions, I'll call them. We did our research, yeah. right? Now we got to get to the email, right? What's your take on, you know, you said one message, one, one, that, that type of rule. I don't know what it's like officially called, yeah. but what does that look like, right? Like, what do you think about, you know, that one message? Where do people get this wrong? Is it, if I have multiple messages, do I do it over multiple emails? Like tell, tell us a little bit about that structure. All right, so you need to start thinking about the hierarchy of event, the actions you want your user to take, right? Yes, you have amazing features, but which one of these will give you the aha moment, the value realized moment, and the value achieved, right? So the aha moment is usually when people sign up and they realize, okay, so this is potentially a solution to our problem. The value realized moment is when they first use your software and think, okay, my hunch was right. This actually has the capabilities of, you know, solving my problem. And then the value achieved moment is when they actually their problem is solved. And that is when they become diehard fans and long-term users, right? And so what, what actions do they need to take to go from aha to value achieved? And so from from there, we need to sit down. And, and this is where I dive deep into the pain points of the waste of customer research part, right? And what are the roadblocks that they're hitting? And how can we make it easier? And a lot of times I'm surprised, I was surprised when I first started noticing is that it is expectation setting in your emails, right? Oh, because there are certain things that your software can and cannot do, but there are other ways to solve that problem. And you just need to phrase it in a way where the user realizes that, okay, there's another way to do this and it might be even better, right? And so you don't have to highlight every single thing. Pick five to seven features or benefits that you want to, that will get them from one phase, which is the other moment to the last one, which is value achieved, and then take it from there. And so even if you're highlighting, let's say one feature, don't let that email be feature-based. Make that email benefit-based. What is future-paced a little bit? What is that email going, what is, what is their life going to look like if they do this and then get to the other side, right? So it starts with a small action. And then, you know, obviously every software takes time and effort to set it up properly. And then you need to, it's a little escalating, right? So you take a small step, which is usually set up your profile, do activate your account, all of that. And then you move on to bigger versions. But don't like my big thing here is don't highlight every feature that you're super proud of. Highlight the features that will make the biggest impact for your users. Got it. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's a big thing. That's why the research, like you said, is so important is because I think that, you know, we're all kind of biased towards, well, this is my favorite thing because it took so long to build <laughs> and your customer might be like, I don't care about that at all. Or they care about it, but not to the degree that, that you care about it, obviously. Okay. So I liked what you said there. I, I guess you kind of alluded to this, but maybe to ask it directly, like what do most people get wrong, even if it's obvious? Like, what are the things that if, if I'm listening to this, I should go, oh, I need to check my emails to make sure I don't have these four things or whatever it is. I'm going to say, go check your emails for their simplicity, right? If you are trying to achieve more than one thing in an email, you need to simplify and you need to figure out whether it's the, the other two things or three things that are in there are even necessary, right? So if the whole thing is you want them to click through, go to the app and do something, then just make the focus that. Don't put in your social 
social media handles at the bottom or a PS about something else at the bottom. Like I remember this one email that I received from a SaaS company, which was which was an onboarding email. But then at the bottom, there was like this webinar invitation. A, I'm not interested in the webinar because I'm not there yet. And B, this was supposed to, you know, it, it's confusing. Um, yeah. I got distracted. And then I'm somebody who evaluates these things for a living, right? And so if I am probably harder than usual on, on these emails um, than the average person, but still the conversions don't lie. And yeah. so if you're unconvinced, I, I always say, let's run an expert. And your cluttered email versus my simpler emails. And let's see what happens. It's an interesting question or it's an interesting comment that you just made because, so I'm totally totally aligned um, in agreement. Do you feel though that like any email that you send, it's going to be rare depending on what it is to get a hundred percent open, hundred percent action, right? Like it's just, it, it's unrealistic and you can get really high Absolutely. actions, right? Yeah. And, and you know, if you're sending a general marketing email, like, you know, with a blog post or something like that, like, you know, 50%, you're a God, right? Like assuming your list is pretty big, right? Yeah. yeah. How do you think about that? Like, I guess to ask a different way is like, how do you think about acceptable loss, right? Because if we have 30% of people open or we have 5% of people take an action, you have 95% of people who, you know, probably not all were, were misaligned, but yeah. you know, some of them, they're just like, oh, that's cool, but not for me right now, which is fine. But then there's, there's probably a majority that are like, eh, like yeah. I don't want this or this is dumb or something like that. Like, how do you, how do you think about that acceptable? loss. Like I know the, the perfectionist probably in you is like, I want none of it, but you know, realistically. No, so yes, it. it's, it's a hard lesson that I've learned, like as I matured and as an email marketer, but I will accept the acceptable loss after I've created a plan for the, the people that don't take any action. Got so it. yes. Right. So conversions are great, but I will, I'm also creating a plan for people who are not taking any action. We're not doing what we want them to do. And Got so it. if after that, nothing still happens, then that to me is acceptable loss because we did the research. We created a backup plan for people who will not take an action. And if that still isn't happening, then, you know, for now, that is an acceptable loss. We can always circle back and think about ways on how to re-engage them. But um, because I work on like these email journeys with clients and SaaS companies, we're just focusing, like we're focusing on the onboarding. Then after that, we have to move to other parts of the email journey, right? Got and it. so my focus is always to build it out and then optimize it. Got it. Do you find that, so maybe let's go through, like I sent a webinar email, I have good response rates, but not hundred percent. What's my plan for the people who didn't sign up for the webinar? Simple. You either like, then you have to sit down and decide how do you want to treat them, right? So even if they sure. didn't sign up, how do you feel about sending a recording? How do you feel about sending? Um, and there are a bunch of ways that you can deal with it, right? If not a recording, then the highlights, right? This is what we talked about. Um, and this is a great, in, um, storytelling is where I feel really comes into play into emails like this when you're trying to convert people who didn't do what you wanted them to do. And Got so it. you can highlight one specific part of the webinar in your email and talk about it and how amazing, how interesting it was and all of that. And then at the bottom say, if you missed it, you can still sign up to watch the recording. Got it. Okay. So and that's... Yeah. It's less complicated than I thought. I think it was kind of like, I was looking for a super secret thing that you were like, oh my God. You know, it's like, it's a, you know, it doesn't, and that's a good sign. I'm, like it doesn't have to be complicated. I believe in simplicity and I believe that email is a communications tool more than it is a marketing tool. That makes and sense. And so there's a way to market while still having a conversation. That makes sense. Okay. The conversation piece, that's going to have me thinking a little bit, especially around some of these pieces, because I think that like, I do think there's so much low hanging fruit that the 
there's so much low hanging fruit when it comes to this, this whole concept of like people who did not take the action you want. And I have not thought about this way. So now this is like my gears turning and I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a great question like six hours from now that I'm not going to be able to ask right now because I wasn't thinking about it. But okay, so we got this. And then maybe final question on this like whole topic. What are some areas or some actions that you typically see people not taking advantage of that are like, I don't want to say easy, quick wins, but are like places that people, you know, should, should be thinking about? I'm going to say retention. So people are not focusing enough on the retention aspect of it. Right. And so when we're thinking about onboarding, we're just thinking about onboarding, but I always say, think about onboarding with retention in mind. So if you've done your research, you'll know what roadblocks are going to pick moving forward. Right. And it's think about how you can remove that obstacle within your onboarding. And so it doesn't get to that point. And after the onboarding, a lot of people will just leave it at that. But then you need to keep building out that email journey, right? And one of the lowest hanging fruits for increasing retention is moving people to the animal path. And make them an offer that will be irresistible enough for them, or they will see the value in upgrading to an animal plan, and that's instant uh, increase in retention, right? And so um, the other thing, and it sounds counterintuitive, but before uh, renewals, especially for annual plans, send them an email letting them know that a renewal is coming up and you will be charging their card on, on so-and-so day. And give them options, right? So if you know if you want to change your credit card details, here it is. If you want to cancel or move to a lower tier account or whatever, here's what to do. Or reach out to us and we help you out. It's very simple, but instills trust in your users. And so, you know, it's just one of those things that I always recommend uh, SaaS companies do, which is send reminder emails that their card is going to be charged. Yeah, that's interesting. I think, so term optimization or plan optimization, as you kind of talked about, uh, we built an entire product around this. So definitely on board with with that. I think, especially for like subscription commerce folks, I just think it's such an easy, low-hanging piece of fruit. The discounts don't necessarily have to be that high as you kind of were alluding to as well. And in the world of SaaS, it's like really, really obvious. I think that sending for the card about to be charged, I think legally you have to do that with subscription commerce in the States. Um, And I think it's, it's, a good idea. Uh, they're not doing it. They're well, not, no, even if I know, it's legally I know. It's, required, they're yeah. not doing it. Enforcement is always interesting with a lot of this stuff. I think, I just think, and you were kind of alluding to this. So one, I legally, you have to do it and you should be doing it. I just think people suck at it so much. Like they just, it's like so transactional. It's like, this is such good real estate that you have to use and you're not doing anything about it. I don't know. I I would actually opt, especially in the world of SaaS. And this is more of an opinion than anything is I don't think you should send it. I think you just have a generous refund policy and also generous. Like, yeah, yeah, I, I just think a generous refund and a generous, like you should send a receipt like that you charge yeah. someone. I, I just yeah. think that it's, there's always this weird balance and, and this might be an interesting philosophical discussion for you and me, but there's always this weird balance where it's like, idealistically, you should be able to email people as much as you want and everything should be fine. But I think what ends up happening is people don't put enough time into all the emails because there's a lot of emails that yeah. you should be really thoughtful about. And they end up having like really bad emails. And then all of a sudden it encourages more churn. And it's, again, it's one of those things where it's a healthy balance. Like no email should cause churn, but they do, right? And so 
I think what we typically find also is, and I don't know if you've, and I have a lot of data on this, but uh, so it's one of those things that might be helpful for you, but like expiration emails, like, so, hey, your card's about to expire. You just shouldn't send them. You shouldn't send them oh, before the point of failure. Yeah. Well, and here's the thing. And I always say this and people are like, oh my God, emails, you know, we should send them. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like if you're a SaaS product, even if you're not, you should do in-app notifications and maybe one SMS message because the open rates on those are obviously so high. But the problem is, is that there's a lot of people who like send a seven, a seven email trip before the cards expired. They're just bad at writing the emails. And then what ends up happening is, is that a lot of those, a lot of those expirations will be updated either automatically yeah. in some particular fashion. And we've seen that it actually increases active cancellations by about 10 to 20% when you send those emails. Because again, you're reminding someone they're, they're purchasing, which should not be a problem, but we that's why you send a receipt yeah, and have a pretty it. generous refund policy. And then legally with subscription commerce, I think obviously you do it, but it also helps you too because you're shipping something. And so you want to make sure everything's yeah. good, I guess. But yeah, it's interesting. It's very, very interesting. But speaking of retention, are there any comments on that? I, I just went off on an aside there for like three minutes. So I just want to make sure that I, I didn't- No, but I want to go back to that because yeah, you made some really interesting points and I see the wisdom of that, right? But when I said that you need to let them know that a charge is coming up, I did. I meant one email because that's literally all that's required. Yeah. Um, you don't. You really don't need to turn it into a sequence. So this is where like keeping it simple comes into play, right? Don't sure. overcomplicate it. Oh. Um, and again, um, for cancel cards and all of that, you have a point. Like let's wait until it fails before yeah. we send them a reminder email, right? But then again, it's it's all one of those things where you need to sit down, look at the data, look at your research, and then or listen to somebody like Patrick who has that data making <laughs> yeah. those decisions. And so, you know, I I really like that perspective. Yeah. Yes. Well, I also think that so, so even in subscription commerce, it sets up a really weird. Let's say the card's about to expire. Right. And we know the cards about to, like, cause you can see that in the billing system. Right. Well, if you send me an email, that's like, we're, your order is about to ship. Awesome. Right. Cause that's what ends up people, people end up doing yeah. like that email should be, Hey, we have this awesome order. Like, here's what's in it. I'm so excited to send it to you, but your card's about to expire. So we're not really sure if this is going to work. Like, can you update your card? Like, I think that's fine, especially in yeah. subscription commerce. I think in B2B. That sounds SaaS, like a conversation, right? So it's a conversation. Yeah, exactly. Email. Totally. I don't think, I don't know if you've seen any of our emails, but that's, that's the type of emails we, we like really try to send. The other thing that we've kind of found now that you got me going here is plain text works so much better. These types of emails than marketing emails. Like, do you ever struggle with talking to people and they're like, yeah, but our design department really wants like this, this, and this. And you're like, yes, but I actually want to send this very basic email. Like, what do you typically see with that? No. So for SaaS companies, I see no problems. They're very on board with sending text emails if there's a need. Right. And even if when they're designing emails, I tend to keep the design element to a minimum because conversational emails mean they sound like personalized personal emails and there's no need for them to be extremely designed. Right. So we're looking at a design footer. We're looking at a bit of a header and that's it. I'm a huge proponent of white space. And so my emails need like to that. look like emails. And so uh, but in the e-commerce world, especially even in, whether it's subscription or anything else, yes. I do run into that because they have set templates. They have a design team that is set in doing certain things. So it's whenever I need to send something out, it's a conversation that I need to start having way before I even get done writing that email. 
because I, it's one of those things I don't want to put in the effort if that email is not going to be sent out the way I envision it to be sent. I like that. And so, yeah, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's one of those things that a brand will need to experiment with. And whenever I hit some uh, against a, a roadblock or a, a thought process like this, I'm like, let's try it. Let's try yeah. it. Sending a text-based email doesn't do much. And if it doesn't work out that well, we'll, we'll have that data point. And I feel yeah. like saying that just helps calm everybody down. Yeah, right? so I like that. So you're suddenly not challenging anybody's hard work or perception or experience. You're saying what's wrong and it's hard. Yeah, I like that. Interesting. When do you think marketing heavily designed emails work? I don't want to say better, but maybe it's like, when should you use those versus something that's a little more plain text in B2B SaaS or in subscription commerce or commerce in general? Uh, say never. <laughs> oh, never. Interesting. Yeah. Even for because like a product announcement or like a feature no, so announcement? E-commerce is a different thing, right? But because you sure. mentioned SaaS, I would say no, because there are so many, when you're announcing a feature, there's a lot, your um, users are going to feel a lot of anxiety about using that new feature. So instead of turning it into a design element where the email is going to look nice, think about elevating their anxiety. So um, Linktree does this really brilliantly where every time they release a new feature, they will include an instruct, instructional GIF inside it that shows you where to go to access that new feature, what um, options you need to select to turn it on, all of that, so that by the time you click through, you kind of have a vision of what it's going to look like within the software, right? And so I am always on for like, think about your user and not about how that email will look. An email is just a medium that's helping yeah. you communicate with your user. And so you need to think about how they will feel when you're announcing something. And if it's a feature, you know, there's going to be anxiety. Interesting. I'm literally scrolling your Twitter feed right now, looking for this. <laughs> see if you have it. It's, if you have I will it, send I'd love you, to see that. I will send you that. Because I did a tear down of Linktree's emails with Mark Thomas sometime last year. And yeah. it was one of the emails that I highlighted. That's really cool. That's really cool. Why this over all the things you could be doing? Like why email? Why retention? Like why why this? Like how, how did we get oh. here? Yeah. Okay. Um, are you asking from a perspective of how I got started or just general? No, for for you. Like what okay. personally, like I'm how I met yeah. Val Geisler. Okay. <laughs> to me, she's the queen of SaaS emails, right? And yeah. so when and a little backstory here, I started freelancing in 2008. I was I had just graduated, gotten married, and moved to a country. And this all of these three things happened within 10 days of each other. And so I started looking for jobs, couldn't find any because I had moved to Dubai, right? And so 2008, the recession hadn't hit yet. And and every employer I was interviewing with was asking me about my driver's license. And they were like, let's talk when you have that license. And I, that felt very strange to me, right? And so when I asked my husband, he's like, yeah, commute is a problem here. Public transport is non-existent at this point. Oh, so you need a driver's license, right? And so we went to get my driver's license and enrolled me in classes. And because the recession hadn't hit yet, Dubai is at its peak. Just the waiting time period to start my lessons is six months. I'm sitting at home Interesting. getting bored. I don't have any family in the country. I'm totally new. I don't have any friends. And so I and this, I used to write on a, on a citywide blog when I was in Pakistan before my marriage, right? And so I was like, if a place like Pakistan has blogging and, and you know being paid for a newsletter articles, then Dubai would do. And so I go online and I search for writing jobs online and I come across a content mail 
that I didn't realize what was a content bill at the time, right? But basically, I spent 10 years as a content writer, and in 2017, I was burned down to the point where I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. Like, just the idea of go writing another blog post would give me so much anxiety. And so I joined Joanna Weave's freelancing course 10x FC at that time. And I figured if there's anybody who can get me out of my funk, it's Joe. And so I joined, started doing the work that she was telling us to do and quickly realized that the problem was that I was done with writing content. And I always say that content writers have a shelf life minus 10 years. Um, and it's not like I was working with big brands. I was writing for Marriott, Intercontinental, Aetna, MetLife, and, you know, internet famous companies like Copyblogger and stuff. Um, Paul Jarvis was a client of mine that is still a feather in my cap. That's cool. And so even though I was seeing all of that success as a content writer, I was burned out, all of that, I joined Joe's course. I met Paul Geiser in there. And uh, when I realized that I was done with writing content, like writing is the only thing I've ever been good at, right? Uh, I was never a good student. I flunked most of my classes. And so I knew that if whatever I was going to do next had to do with writing. And so if not content, then copy. And so I started experimenting with landing pages, website copy, sales pages, and pretty much cried my way through it all. Uh, and thankfully, luckily, around that time, Val was like, I'm looking for subcontractors um, for, for my business. And I reached out to her and I said, listen, I'm a fast learner. I don't make the same mistake twice. Will you please take a chance on me? And she did and gave me a re-engagement email sequence to write and gave me two weeks to do it. And I was the happiest I've been in a long time. By the time I turned in my first email sequence to her, um, I knew that I found my passion and kudos to Val for being an amazing mentor and teacher. She would always answer my questions. She would always explain her reasoning with me. And then when she felt like I was ready, she pushed me to do this, come up with the strategy stuff myself. And That's then cool. she would just overview it. And then she would ask me, why did I make this decision? And so I, with her, I learned to defend my decisions as well and explain them in a way that now I can explain to my clients as well. And so that's, that's so cool. how I landed in email. That's so cool. I love Val. Yeah. Val's great. And I just, she it's one of those amazing. things where it's like, it's um, what I like about her as well as like other members of, I don't know how to define this community exactly. It's kind of like the email community, I guess. We can't it's, call ourselves email geeks anymore, I think. Is that offensive now or do it just, just? No, no. Through. So somebody just <laughs> trademarked that uh, phrase, apparently. And so. Oh, that's so antithetical yeah. to that community, I feel. Yeah, but maybe they didn't yeah. know. What I love about this community is it's super helpful. It like is. just in, not just to the extent that Val did, which is like, a lot like you just described, but just in terms of like, Hey, I actually don't think that that's a great email because of X, Y, Z or Hey, did you ever think about like looking at this email or something like that? And it, it kind of like helps, helps each other out. Whereas like other communities can get very, I don't know, confrontation is not the right word because confrontation is help too, but like can get very, um, <laughs> I want to use like jerkish, you know, basically yeah, something yeah. along those, those minds, like even if they're all a part of the community. So no, that's really cool. Okay. A couple of last questions that I ask everybody, what was your first job ever? And what did you learn from it? I tutored a six week kid in that and hated it. Hate it. <laughs> Cause that kid was brilliant, but all yeah. he wanted to do was look at the walls. Like we oh. didn't, he didn't, his parents had taken away his phone and everything at that point because he was flunking math. And he was a brilliant kid, right? And so my job literally was to make him concentrate because he knew what he needed to do in math. I didn't have to teach him math. I had to get him to concentrate. And I hated that job. But yeah, it taught me to sit things through because I needed the money as a student, yeah. starting student. And so I was like, 
okay, I need to do this. I need to get through this. And, you know, and, and I kept telling myself, it is only until he passes his exam that I don't have to see his face again. I mean, <laughs> no, no offense to that kid. He was extremely well-behaved, right? Yeah. And it's not like he was giving me a hard time. He just wasn't concentrating. Yeah. And so, but yeah, so as long as, for me, the lesson I learned there was that as long as there's an end date, I can pretty much put up with anything. No, that's because you're saying. <laughs> it also probably helped you not to talk about customers sometimes, but customers can be children sometimes. And as a result, you know, sometimes hard to deal with, even if there is an end date. What did your parents do and what did you learn from them? So my mom was, is a housewife, always has been. And my dad was in the merchant Navy. So uh, we were very lucky that he was allowed to, because he was, um, at that time, there were things called radio officers, which now tech has made that job obsolete. But his job was to communicate with the other ships in the area, with the port when they were docking, all of that. And so he was allowed to take his family with him. And so I traveled a ton cool. across the world before I even turned six, right? And when we turned six, my parents had to make that decision of not traveling anymore because we were starting grade school. And when you go on a merchant Navy ship, you go when it leaves, you come back when it comes back. And that could be six to eight months, right? Or you, you know, you pay out of your pocket to fly a family out. And my dad obviously didn't have that much to do it. But from them, I have learned the value of education. Right. So my both my parents were high school graduates, nothing more than that. But and they have four daughters in a patriarchal society like Pakistan. That's something to be pitied about. So I remember the pitying things up looks that he would get because he didn't have a son. But my parents never let it bother them. And they there for them, the whole thing was where you need to educate our daughters. And so importance of education is another thing I learned from them. Resilience is something that I learned from them. And um, somehow my mother managed to raise hardcore feminist daughters who are now doing things on our own, right? So my sister went on to do her PhD in public health, is now in Canada working full time. I was the first person in my family to start a business and you know, bring it to the level of success that I've been able to. Um, my younger sisters are equally brilliant at doing other stuff. And so it's... Um, We've all gone off the beaten path, and it's only because my parents were able to give us the education that we did. And I mean, my dad is amazing, but but he's a part of the patriarchal society, right? His whole thinking was that I need to get my daughters married off, and then I'm only educating them because God forbid if I die early or if their husbands die early or something happens to them where they need to look out for themselves. So education would help them do that. But we did get married, and we did start our own businesses, and we are flourishing. That's awesome. And so. Yeah. So, you know, there is that. He managed to, he was doing it from his perspective. We decided to take his vision and just run with it. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always fun to see where, where people come from and what they learn and things like that. So awesome. Where, uh, where can people find you and anything you want to plug? Yeah, absolutely. So if you are curious about the work that I do, that is summerwest.com. Let's plug that in because my spelling is really weird. But if you want to talk about geek out over emails with me, I pick an email fight every Wednesday at emailsdoneright.com. That is my newsletter. And it started out as like your average email marketing newsletter, right? But I have strong opinions and it really feels like I'm picking a fight every Wednesday. So that's the unofficial title. I like that. I like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. And, and since this is Wednesday today, I am yo-yoing between talking about how SaaS companies can do Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Uh, and they're in such a unique position to do amazingly at it because they're not shipping anything. Uh, and so they don't have to deal with the supply chain issues or how hard e-commerce makes the post-purchase sequence building within ESPs, right? 
So two yeah. things that I'm thinking about and let's see which one makes the cut. No, that's awesome. Awesome. Well, appreciate the time. And uh, yeah, your Twitter feed is also really good. So uh, Thank you. yeah, Thank follow you, you there and all that kind of fun stuff. So appreciate it. Cool. A huge shout out to Samar for doing the podcast. Now you have what it takes to speak email. Today we talked about the one rule that makes a good email, mapping out an email journey, getting from value realized to value achieved moments in email, how to deal with non-responsive readers and keeping readers focused on your message. Oh, and if you want to support ProfitWell on the show, we would greatly appreciate it if you leave a five-star review of this podcast or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. The podcast gods like that type of thing, and we like to appease the podcast gods. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest-growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. Thank you.